and welcome to Counsel for the State. I'm Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. Counsel for the State is a podcast produced by my office. Our goal in each episode is to share information with Idaho residents, journalists, and anyone with an interest in state government. Our aim is to increase transparency, further understanding of the office's role in government, and discuss timely legal topics. I hope you enjoy this installment and consider exploring past episodes as well. With that, here is the Office of the Attorney General, Public Information Officer, and Counsel for the State host, Scott Graff. Hello and welcome to Counsel for the State, a podcast produced by the Office of the Idaho Attorney General, Lawrence Wasden. Earlier this month, Idahoans went to the polls and cast ballots on Election Day. Common races this election cycle included mayors and city council members, as well as various ballot measures across the state. In most of the contests, the outcomes were clear. In a few others, though, that was not the case. Here in the Treasure Valley, two cities, for instance, will be holding high-profile runoffs between leading vote-getters in the coming weeks. Occasionally, post-election matters can involve this office, and that's what we'll be discussing in today's episode of Council for the State. To do so, we're joined by Robert Berry. Robert is a Deputy Attorney General in the Office of the Attorney General's Civil Litigation Division, and he frequently works on election-related issues even weeks after the polls close. Robert, we appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you. Thank you. And Brian Kane is back with us today, as Brian is in the uh, assistant chief deputy position here in the AG's office, and he's a regular here on Council for the State. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you, Scott. So, Brian, let's start with you. You, too, play a role here in our office this time of year after elections. Kind of explain uh, your role, if you will. Uh, Sure thing, Scott. And I I think it's important to note that um, our office isn't involved just following the elections. We're involved all the way through the election process. Um, and that goes all the way out to um, when when candidates declare for office, to the campaign finance questions that arise, uh, to preparation of ballot questions, um, all of the what the boundaries are with regard to precincts, and all of the little things that go in between uh, all of those sorts of issues. Um, generally, the way that the process works um, is. Uh, folks will call our office with election questions or they'll call the Secretary of State's office uh, and we at times will provide an answer directly to constituents if it's something that's directly in the code Um, but we can't cross the line to where we're providing them legal advice Uh, and then in our role as uh, legal counsel to the Secretary of State uh, we help them interpret and apply the, the election laws in almost all contexts. So if the phone rings and it's someone from the county level, what's uh, with an election-related question to our office? How do we typically respond to that? Uh, Usually we'll try to help them through that process, uh, generally with the caveat that whatever we discuss with them, uh, they should make sure that they've got their county prosecutor on board as well. Um, because the reality is if the county uh, doesn't apply the law correctly, uh, it's the county that's going to wind up being in that, in that lawsuit, not our office. And so if our advice is off a little bit and the county prosecutor doesn't know about it, they, they may find themselves in a tough legal spot. So we always advise folks as they discuss with us, make sure you've got your legal advisors on board as well. So Robert, it's been a couple of weeks since the election here in Idaho. Um, I'll ask you to sort of zoom out from specific issues that you're working on and talk about the work of our civil litigation division in this realm uh, following elections. What types of issues are we contacted about and do we get to work on? Sure, Scott. Um, One of the things that we see the most after an election and given the population of our state is we see a lot of requests for recounts. Um, And we have a specific statutory code 
that allows for free recounts uh, depending upon the disparity between um, the winner and the loser. And so generally speaking, when you have a, a difference about five votes or less, we see more recount requests because then it's a free recount for the requester. And so that's usually when our office gets involved, we, we contact all the people who are part of the race, um, try to get their availability to get the recount. We speak with the county clerk to get their availability. Um, we'll reach out to the secretary of state and we kind of assemble a team to redo the um, vote. And I think that one of the things that's really important to point out is that uh, un under the free recount statute, you still have to request it. So there's no recount that just automatically applies um, based on operation of law. There always has to be a request for the recount under the code. And that request comes directly to our office, is that right? Right. And the code actually outlines that for uh, certain types of elections, that request comes straight to our office. Um, at that point, we've got some responsibilities with regard to uh, communicating with the sheriff because we need to make sure that those ballots are immediately locked up and secured and protected. Mm. And, it, and oh, that's ahead. correct. Sorry. Yeah. That's the first thing that our office generally does is get an order for impoundment straight to the sheriff to secure those ballots. How long does someone have to file that, uh, that request for a recount? They have 20 days from the date of the canvas. And that's something that I think, if you're listening to this, it's really important to understand that you've got your election night results. Uh, those are not official results. What you get on election night are just, it's the first count. What will happen after election night is that then those votes are canvassed by a board of canvassers. And when that canvas is complete, that's when the results are official at that point. And so all of the timelines operate from when that canvas occurs. And those are those deadlines are set in statute. So this is a good opportunity. For years, we all have heard about, you know, on election night, you get the initial round of results, but later there is a canvassing. What actually is a canvassing of the votes? So a canvassing of the votes is um, generally it's a report brought by the county clerk that says here are the results um, and they're broken down and the canvassers review the results, make sure everything adds up um, and looks appropriate. If there are any election uh, issues that need to be reported at that time, uh, they will report them to the canvassers so that they're aware of them as they go through and confirm uh, all of the results. And then they say, yes, these are the results of the election. Here's a very specific question. If I'm putting you guys on the spot, let me know and I'll, I'll retract it. But if, let's say, there's a very, very close race in a local election, um, it looks obvious that there's going to be a recount or maybe the need for a recount is there. Can that just be done on its own at the county level without the request? Or is there, this is the trigger to, to make that recount happen? No, it, there, there needs to be a written request. And okay. again, it depends upon the type of race or measure that we're talking about. Okay. And part of it is you want to make sure you can't just start going in and recounting ballots because there, you, as the clerk, there's a responsibility to protect those ballots. Um, and that's part of the importance of that impoundment order is that we're saying, hey, these ballots need to be out of the reach of folks because there is a question as to the accuracy of the result. And so we're going to come in and confirm that. And so you can't have folks getting in and out of ballot boxes, so to speak. Who has to file, or I should say, who can file that written request to trigger a recount? Does it have to be a candidate? Can it be a supporter? Can it just be you both are <laughs> leaning down and opening your code books here? So I believe it has to be any candidate. It has yep. to be a candidate. Any candidate, 34-2301. 
uh, any candidate for federal, state, county, or municipal office desiring a recount. Okay. All right. So, uh, Robert, you, as we uh, prepared to get uh, going here on the podcast, you t- said there's four specific scenarios that our civil litigation division is now involved with. Can you detail those four? Sure. We, we've um, received a request for four uh, recounts. Uh, one is for the mayor of Hayburn, and that is a uh, paid request. It's not one of the free recounts, and therefore, if it's a paid request, it's $100 per precinct um, that needs to be submitted when you when you make the request. Now, that requirement for a paid recount is based on the gap in the f- initial count, correct? Correct. That if you- it falls within a certain threshold, it's done free, but this has fallen out of that threshold, so somebody's got to pay for it. Correct. Okay. So the other three that we have, we have uh, two city council races, one in Kamii, the other um, in Ashton, and then we have a bond recount request in Fruitland. And Brian, my assumption is with uh, the design of the the language in the code requiring the threshold of the gap to be surpassed in order to trigger a pay, that's basically to prevent there being a recount at any point in time, right? It's There's no frivolous recounts if you have to pay for it. Well, exactly, and, and part of it is to offset the costs that go into the recount, and that's why that $100 per precinct uh, is levied. And I think that, you know, as the gap widens, the likelihood of the result changing diminishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can tell you that, um, and, and Robert can, can speak to this as well, but having conducted a number of recounts around the state, if the margin is more than about three or four votes, the result probably isn't going to change. Really? And it's the way that the recount operates. Generally, uh, if one candidate picks up a vote and the other candidate loses one, well, at some point in the process, that same scenario is going to happen in the opposite mm-hmm. uh, direction. And so really, once you get outside of three, three votes, four votes, it's very difficult to see that result change. And it's getting less so based on electronic counting. As the technology improves, right. the accuracy of the first count is greater and greater. Right. That makes sense. I mean, we, and, and, and I can tell you that when I first came into the office, you know, we would sit down and they were, Idaho was all paper ballots, uh, the counties where we were having recounts, um, and we would sit at counting tables where there would be stacks of ballots and people would call out the tally as they went through. Um, and you can see within that system there is the possibility of a missed tally or a miscount or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, you would see some small fluctuations. But even in those scenarios, um, the, the election workers are incredibly diligent, incredibly dedicated, uh, and by and large, incredibly accurate. So, Robert, when that written request comes in, we, you just mentioned the mayor of Hayburn is one of the recounts that we'll be doing. So somebody, likely, uh, well, a candidate for mayor had to request that in writing of our office from that point to now the establishment of yes the office of the attorney general will be helping with a recount what's the process look like on our end so again the the first thing we do is we get that order of impoundment out and we we contact the clerk to make sure that she's aware of it the clerk is always copied on any order of impoundment so that way they're aware of what's going on Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that each county is different when you impound ballots. Um, some counties are smaller, so the sheriff will physically take custody. Um, in Ada County, for example, there's a dedicated election um, facility. So the sheriff will come in and simply switch out the locks. Is that right? So it stays in the same physical location, but the Ada County Sheriff now has the only keys to access those ballots. Huh. Now, I have a question. What if the, uh, the race in question is the race for sheriff? <laughs> we might get another sheriff. 
you could do that. You could bring in an out-of-county sheriff to oversee the impoundment. I actually don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I, actually, I, there is no provision in the code for it, so the sheriff would still be required to um, impound the ballots, and I think that that's one um, that, fingers crossed, we're, we're hoping doesn't arise. Um, and I, I will tell you that, you know, on election night, one of the mantras of folks that work in elections uh, is we don't care who wins, we just want it to be by a wide margin um, because of because of the administrative burden that recounts produce. So in our Mayor of Hayburn recount, um, what's the date? Do we know? We don't have a date set up just yet. Okay. Once the order of impoundment goes out, we again need to coordinate with all the actors, so that the sheriff and the clerk and, and the candidates, and we need to get a, a date where everybody can be present, if they want to be, because you don't have to be present. You can send a representative if you prefer, but um, we want everybody to have that op opportunity to be there. So. The deadline is triggered once the order of recount goes out. Once the order of recount goes out, we have 10 days from that order. 10 days. So okay. we, we have some flexibility in time, and it's always difficult this time of year because of the Thanksgiving holiday. Which, for a fall election, is always looming. Yes. It always looms. And, and this year is a little interesting because we've got uh, four recounts, two in North Idaho and two uh, over in eastern Idaho. Uh, and so I think that logistically, the other thing we want to do is make sure that the burden on those folks, um, particularly folks that have to travel to those locations, is minimized. Um, so we're trying to coordinate all of those recounts so that they can occur within a fairly short time. And it's also really important that recounts occur fairly rapidly um, because of the confidence level within the system, right? People want the finality of the election. They want to know that it's over, and that enhances confidence in our entire electoral process. Yeah, and when you think about it, there were hundreds of elections earlier yeah. this month, and the fact that, that we're going out to four different places around the entire state suggests that, you know, things went pretty well on election night. Yeah, and I think that, you know, unfortunately, I'm not sure that the media, had, when, they, when the media covered uh, the Bush-Gore election, uh, unfortunately, I don't think they did any favors to the electoral process in the way that that was covered. Um, because I think that if folks observed how a, how a recount occurs um, within Idaho, it actually enhances confidence in the system. Uh, and I can tell you that in having sat through several of them, uh, it's really uh, interesting how the candidates themselves react to that recount process. Uh, and I think that part of it is that as a candidate, you know, if you lose an election, when you walk down the street, everybody you run into is like, oh, I'm sorry you lost, I voted for you. But when you're sitting in that recount room, all of a sudden you get kind of that cold water splash of reality of seeing those ballots where um, they didn't vote for you. And I think the, the even harsher reality for candidates are the number of folks who vote in every other election but yours. Uh -oh. And I think that that's, uh, that's one of those things that folks really struggle with. How could you vote top to bottom on this ballot and skip my election entirely? And here I am close right. enough in a recount. Here I am close enough in a recount and, you know, you skip the election. So, Robert, uh, we're going back to Haber and we've got a date at this point. Uh, what's that actual recount day look like? Well, once we get the date certain, um, we'll go over and um, we'll have spoken with the clerk and we'll have gotten her team ready to go. Um, we'll have a meeting before uh, the recount just to let everybody know what the procedure is. And usually 
my predecessor, Mike Gilmore, he would prepare a script to let everybody know what's going to happen and when and how it would work. And it, our whole goal in this office is to make the recount as seamless as possible. Um, we want it to be transparent. We want it to be an accurate process. And so by letting everybody know up front, I feel like that shows that we're being transparent. And we'll have any candidate be present in the room or their representative so they can physically see their recount, even if it's by hand or by machine. And, um, you know, if they have any questions, we're there to answer. Um, and maybe, maybe you could talk about the audit, too, because there's, I mean, at least nationally, there's been a lot of talk about audit trails of ballots and all of these other sorts of things. And, and Idaho actually has an audit built in um, for optical scan um, oh, ballots. So, yeah, there's two ways to do a recount, one by hand, the other is by machine. And the way that it works in Ada County, at least, um, there's, like, like I said, a dedicated facility that has three servers. And these computers are, are not on any system, and they, in order to proceed... Which is for security, so proceed. they're not connected. And so that's, and I think that that's really important to understand is, you know, one of the things that folks constantly hear about is, oh, we can hack the system. Well, if they're not on a network, it can't be hacked. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we do a, a, a hand sample recount, and then that goes into the machine, the, the, the recounting machine, and we do a test to see if the machine tabulates equal the hand recount. And if it does, then we know for, that we've got a good outcome that's going to be generated from the recount procedure. And so what, what happens is there's a random sample of ballots. Uh, each one of those ballots is, is counted by hand, and then that hand count has to match exactly the machine count. If they don't match exactly, then the default is that all of the ballots will be hand counted. Right, and last year we had a, a massive recount um, for the race of Jim Bratnaber. But at the same time, we also had the recount for the CWI levy, which involved both Ada and Canyon counties. And the effort in that was just massive. Um, to do the hand sample recount, I believe Ada County um, had 100 people come in to do the hand sample, and it took several hours. Mm. And it matched up. It did. But even with that matching, it still took several weeks to do the, the machine recount with the number of ballots that were being recounted. So as this recount there in the room um, in Hayburn goes, goes on, what, what are you doing? I am basically acting as the umpire referee, just walking to make sure that, that the pace is good, that we've got transparency, and basically ruling on any questions that may come up, whether or not this mark counts as a vote. We'll consult with the election judge. We'll also consult with the Secretary of State, and we'll make a determination. And the Secretary of State has issued a guideline on what counts as a vote um, to help us in the process. Um, and then another fairly common occurrence is what's called a spoiled ballot, meaning it's a ballot that for whatever reason got torn or maybe it got creased or who knows what. Um, but then there's a process where that ballot is then recreated. And the way that that ballot is recreated is we supervise the process. Uh, each candidate has the ability to look at the original ballot and then the newly constructed ballot to make sure everything matches up. 
Um, and that's just one of those things that the more times you handle a ballot, the more prone to something happening to it, which again, if you go all the way back to the impoundment and all of those other procedures, the whole goal is to preserve and protect those ballots in as good a condition as we possibly can. Okay, so in our uh, our, our mayor of Hayburn race, now we have to move into the hypothetical because it hasn't happened yet, but let's say candidate A and candidate B, there is now a clear outcome. Let's say candidate A wins the race by two votes. Is that it? Is it all said and done? Or is there yet another appeal? What, what's the status of the race at that point? So once the recount is done, we declare a winner. And from that time, there's a 24-hour appeal right to district court. And once that time expires, then the recount is final. Okay. So you can appeal uh, the recount. And I've participated in one of those um, in the time that I've been in the office. Uh, and the recount was upheld in that case. And so it goes to a court and a judge It goes to a, a district look. judge and, and, they, uh, and the folks appealing the recount will say why they think the vote should have been counted for them. Um, and in the case that I had, it was a write-in campaign uh, that wound up getting decided by 12 votes. Um, and so the, the candidate that lost wanted to say that certain write-in votes uh, should have counted for him. Uh, and what's interesting about the case is that he was trying to claim votes that said things like uh, the write in uh, slot said the other guy. Mm -hmm. um, I think at one point, one of the votes was for Mickey Mouse. Um, and he was trying to say, since I'm a write in candidate, anybody that wrote anything into that write in space uh, was clearly trying to, to vote for me. Uh, and our, our office, in consultation with the Secretary of State, uh, said, nope, that's not how a write in candidate. Uh, candidacy works, you have to actually write the name of the candidate that you're choosing to vote for. So you both have done several of these instances over the years. Just curious if there's any weird stories, anecdotes. You know, I remember four or five years ago, somewhere, I believe down in the Magic Valley, maybe there was a mayoral race that was de decided by a coin flip. Have you ever been, for instance, in a coin flip, have you ever been a, in a situation that involved one of those? No, we, we would not get involved in the coin flick process. Um, what happened there in that case, it was the, it was, I think, a, I can't remember which the race was, but it resulted in a tie. And so the decider, deciding factor was to flip a coin. Under Idaho law, you decide tie That's votes with law. a coin flip. It's actually in law. Wow. Um, or it's a, a, it's a coin flip or some other uh, casting of lots or something like that. And so there's, you have to have some random process by which the winner is declared. Mm -hmm. And most folks choose a coin flip. And so the loser of that requested a recount. And during the recount process, it flipped from a tie to him being the winner by one vote. So the loser of the coin flip went back and requested a, a recount. Correct. At that point, you could still go back and do the recount. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Brian, any uh, strange scenarios you've seen play out? Well, I, I shared the one about the write-in um, where, where he was trying to claim all of those votes. Um, I, I think the other, probably the other odd scenario I've had is I've had a couple of folks request recounts in uh, very wide margin scenarios, meaning uh, a loss by you know, more than 100 votes or uh, 200 votes. Uh, and probably one of the more interesting ones was uh, I was in, uh, in North Idaho and uh, the candidate actually tried to keep up with the tally as they were counting. Um, 
but he couldn't quite keep up with the tally. And so they declared the result. And then he wanted to protest that because he had a completely different number. And his numbers were off by like hundreds uh, from what the official recount was. And I, I actually thought that um, based on that, we were going to get an appeal of that recount. Um, but, but I think that, that cooler and wiser heads at some point prevailed upon that candidate. Um, but it made for a very odd scenario in the courthouse. So we've been talking about recounts and the Office of the Attorney General's role in those. Are there other post-election issues that come up in a given year that our office is not the avenue to assist with, that maybe somebody's got to go out and you know, talk to the, the county clerk or maybe even reach out to private uh, attorneys to, to bring some sort of action into play? So I think the most common post-election um, process that our office is not involved in, but the code specifically outlines, uh, is the election contest process. Um, and really what you're challenging at that point is something within the conduct of the election as a whole wasn't right. Um, and it could be uh, the sort of thing that we just went through a round of municipal elections. Well, if the clerk, for whatever reason, hands out municipal election ballots to folks that don't live within the city boundary and they vote in that election, um, that could be the sort of scenario for a contest because folks that are ineligible to vote have voted and their votes counted. Now, the, the big question under an election contest is whatever the conduct is has to be significant enough that it would have changed the result of the election. And that's a really important phrase, because if the clerk makes a small error um, and you get blown out by 3,000 votes, it's just a small error, right? You have to be able to link up whatever the error is to a changed, a potential changed outcome in the election. And that was actually something our office was involved with a couple of years ago, right? Um, so that was, a, that was you're, you're correct. Your memory uh, serves you well, Scott. Uh, that was a legislative election. Um, and that was even more interesting uh, because the general election contest statutes for like municipal offices, you go to court. Well, in a legislative uh, election contest, you go to the specific chamber uh, for which the candidate is seeking to contest the election. And it's because under Idaho's constitution, each chamber sits as the judge of its own returns and qualifications of members. And so in that scenario, uh, what happened was the uh, Idaho State Senate wound up hearing that contest. That was, I think, three years ago. There was also a legislative race up in the northern part of the state where there was an issue with ballots that went out. And I don't remember the specifics. You might. But that was our office, I think, played a different role in the adjudication of that situation, correct? I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on that one, but I'm, I'm going to go with your memory and say, sure. <laughs> Phil Hart. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and we, um, so we did some work on that. And that, again, that went to court um, the way that they did that. And that was a, that was a little bit different of a process. Um, in part, it was because it was a primary election. Uh, and that's another thing to keep in mind is that the election contest statutes operate differently based on the type of election. And so a primary election, your remedy may be within court uh, in the legislature, but in a uh, general election, your remedy is going to lie within the specific chamber. And so I guess the takeaway for our listeners is when you get into challenging election results, the code is very specific 
and very detail oriented and you really have to follow all of those details otherwise you may have a very valid claim that simply can't be heard because of the specificity required by our statutes. So we have spent, I think, the entirety of our conversation talking, Brian, about state statutes, but there has been a situation uh, in the Treasure Valley here in the city of Caldwell where uh, there's a relationship between city ordinance and state code that has come up that's been in question. And we won't weigh in on the specifics of that, but talk about the relationship a little bit between state code and then sometimes there can actually be more specific rules regarding elections at, in this case, the city level. Sure. And, and what you've got there is you've got kind of an interplay within uh, Title 50, which is the municipal code. Um, and what Title 50 does is it has kind of a default uh, majority or excuse me, a, a default uh, most votes wins. But there are more specific statutes under both uh, the mayoral uh, chapter and the city council chapter that allow for a city to require a majority uh, of the voters to elect. And in that scenario, if nobody achieves a majority uh, within, the, within the general election, then the two highest vote getters advance to a runoff. Um, and so we've seen that kind of operate around the state uh, within this election cycle. Gentlemen, I've exhausted my questions for today's podcast. Are there anything, uh, is there anything, Robert, that you want to address that I haven't given you the opportunity to talk about today in, in this realm and your work and very important work that, that you do? I should say if there's a, rec a recount request in the community where you live, go out and watch it. It's a, it's a fantastic process. You really get to see democracy work um, and you get to see how hard the civil servants work and how they conduct these recounts. So I would encourage anyone to go watch the process. Very good. Brian, anything else? Yeah, if, if you have ever sat around and surmised that your vote doesn't matter or that your vote doesn't count, I hope that today's episode kind of reinforces the fact that every vote does count. One of the most important things that we can do within our system and our nation is to get out and vote. We have uh, four election recounts. Those are all tight races. Uh, we've got a couple of runoffs going on. I mean, it's the sort of thing where every single vote counts. And so please um, take the time to go out and learn about candidates, learn about your government and participate in it. That's the only way that we continue to advance our system. Very good. And we will wrap up today's episode of Council for the State on that note. Thank you again to our guest, Deputy AGs Robert Berry and Brian Kane. And thank you as well for tuning in. This was our 11th episode of the podcast, and we invite you to check out past episodes through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. They're all available through those venues. Uh, each episode is also archived at our website. That is ag.idaho.gov. See you next time. <laughs>